Hello, this is Manny Ramos, your host of Rise Up, Real Issues and Stories of Every One of Us podcast. Joining us today on Rise Up is Dr. Melissa Borja. But first, let me talk about who we are. I'm Manny Ramos, a board member of PNAA and a past president of the Philippine Nurses Association of Central Florida. I'm a professor of nursing at Valencia College here in Orlando and an adjunct faculty at William Patterson University. With me today is my co-host, Mindy Ofiana. Mindy? Hello, Manny. Welcome, everyone. Hi. I am Mindy Ofiana, Legislative Committee Chair for PNAA, Corresponding Secretary for PNAA Foundation, and a past president of PNA Southern California. Before my retirement, I served as both as a Chief Operations Officer and Chief Nursing Officer at one of the medical centers owned by KPC Group of Companies. Good afternoon, Dr. Borja. Or do you want to be called Melissa? <laughs> Melissa is fine, and I'm so happy to be here and to have this you. conversation with you all today. All right. Yes. Uh, so let me introduce our guest. Dr. Melissa Borja is an assistant professor in the Department of American Culture at the University of Michigan. She's a core faculty member in the Asian Pacific Islander American Studies Program. In addition to an MA in History from University of Chicago and an AB in History from Harvard University, Dr. Borja earned a Master of Philosophy and PhD in History from Columbia University. Dr. Borja researches migration, religion, politics, race, and ethnicity in the United States and the Pacific world. An active public scholar, Dr. Borja is a senior advisor to Princeton University's Religion and Forced Migration Initiative, a three-year national program that aims to improve understanding of the role that religion plays in the lives of refugees as they resettle in the United States. Dr. Borja is an affiliated researcher with the Stop Asian American Pacific Islander Hate Reporting Center a partnership with, that unites scholars and communities, organizations to document, analyze, and prevent hate incidents targeting Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. She's part of a national research team that receives support from the Louisville Institute to study Filipino-American theology and religious life during the COVID-19 pandemic. Finally, she contributes regularly to the religious history blog, Anxious Bench, and her lecture on Southeast Asian refugees was recently figure, featured on C-SPAN's Lectures in American History. Dr. Borja, welcome to Rise Thank Up. Thank you so much. So, um, Dr. Borja, during the pandemic, uh, you started to work with a group of Filipino-American pastors and theologians and religious scholars to talk about Filipino-American Christianity and develop a collaborative research project. Would you mind telling us about it? Absolutely. No, I am Filipino-American, and whenever I go to a, an academic conference, anytime I find another scholar who identifies as Filipino-American, it's really exciting. The reality is that there aren't a lot of us out there. And so the project that you just mentioned actually began well before the pandemic, when at the American Academy of Religion, which is the major conference for scholars who study religion and theologians, when I was there a couple of years ago, I found all of these other Filipino-American 
scholars, we got together, we said, we wanna do a project together someday because we wanna make sure that the academy, that people in religious studies and theology pay attention to our unique experiences. Mm -hmm. and the reality is that even among Asian American um, study scholars, Filipino Americans are not always very present in those conversations. So when the pandemic began, we realized that so many Filipino Americans are on the front lines, working as nurses, uh, working on cruise ships. And it was interesting to us to think about how Filipino Americans are drawing on their religious commitment, their faith in order to persevere during these difficult times. Mm. Uh, good, good. Melissa, so, I, I, I know there's a lot of write-ups or news related to um, the pandemic affecting nurses. Now, how about you, your family, or your work as a professor and researcher? How did that affect you for, it's been over a year and a half now? I'm so glad you brought up this question because I think for all of the scholars that I just mentioned, um, and other scholars who are working on other issues related to Asian Americans during the pandemic, for example, anti-Asian racism during the pandemic, we bring our own personal stories and experiences mm -hmm. and commitments to our family and our community into the work we do. Um, so I am the daughter of a Filipino nurse. I, my mom I went to St. Paul's Nursing College in Iloilo. Oh. I, oh, wow. And that is how we came to the U.S. I was born and raised in Michigan. But all my relatives are nurses. Um, in fact, one of my cousins is a nurse in Orlando. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so when the pandemic hit, I think that I was um, paying close attention to not only the experience of Filipino nurses in abstract, but it's people I know. Um, I spent 10 years in New York City. I have a lot of family in New York City, actually. Um, in the Bronx, in Queens, and they were on the front lines in the very, very beginning of the pandemic mm -hmm. in its early stages. And so at the same time that there were people who were discussing Filipino American experiences in nursing during the pandemic in abstract terms, uh, and I, I, I could do that too. It was also very personal for me. Mm -hmm. um, and the Filipino American scholars who I mentioned earlier, we all have relatives who are working in nursing. Um, and I think for many of us, our lives in the United States were possible because of careers in nursing. So it it does feel very close to home and it, it felt very close to home in the very scary early stages of the pandemic. It felt also close to home a year later when things were peaking and getting very terrible uh, in the early months of 2021. So my mother, I remember, uh, was very struck by the fact that one of her uh, nursing classmates um, died from COVID. Her husband died from COVID and their son died from COVID. They lived in Southern California. Mm -hmm. All three were Filipino American, a whole family wiped mm -hmm. out. Yeah. Um, and so that, that had a big impact on my mm -hmm. mom. Mm -hmm. And it felt to me that I had an obligation to right of Filipino American experiences in a way that honors the suffering, but also the resilience that we're seeing daily among Filipino American mm -hmm. nurses. Mm -hmm. 
So in your interactions with the Filipino Americans and the nurses who are on the front lines um, and in, in, in the projects that you've been involved, have you identified uh, the priorities that you feel like needs to be uh, addressed uh, during this past uh, year and a half of the pandemic? Well, we're still early in our research, the, the Filipino American theology and religious studies group that I mentioned. But I think some very basic things that we have observed is that religious life and religious faith mm -hmm. is a critical part of understanding um, Filipino-American experiences, including Filipino-American nurses' experiences. There's been some news media coverage of this fact, but I, I think that there's often a blind spot amongst people who study Filipino-American experiences um, that they don't pay attention to the religious dimensions as much as, as they could. I mean, I think that's a big mistake. To be honest, growing up in mid-Michigan, the primary place where I encountered Filipino Americans was at the Catholic Church. And we would gather in the vestibule and hang out after mass. That's where we would see the other Filipino Americans. On occasion, we'd see each other for the local Filipino American Association Christmas party, but regularly it would be at church. And so it seemed important to me even before the pandemic to pay attention, more attention to the religious dimensions of Filipino American experiences. And it seemed really important to do that in the middle of the pandemic as well, because we know that the pandemic was hard on people. People were suffering. Mm -hmm. People experienced a tremendous amount of loss, a tremendous amount of grief. And in those circumstances, it is religious community, religious belief, religious ritual that can be such a powerful source of sustenance for people, especially when they are asked to put themselves in harm's way regularly. Mm -hmm. You know, I, 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 I do understand the, dif the difficulties of some of the nurses at the bedside, as you have mentioned, Recently, though, not just recently, there has been a surge of anti-Asian uh, racism and violence during the COVID-19 pandemic. How did this affect you? Yes, it actually really transformed my career in very profound and unexpected ways. So when um, the pandemic hit, I was preparing to spend a fellowship year at Harvard. I am finishing up a book on refugee resettlement. And I was planning to spend most of 2020 and 2021 doing that research. Um, but then the pandemic hit and there was very much a need to understand what was happening in the world. Now, I always think that one of the most useful things we can do when there is some sort of crisis is to lean into what we know how to do, lean into the skills and knowledge and networks that we have. And so while my friends and family were going into the hospital, I thought, well, they're fighting one aspect of the pandemic, the virus. But what I can do is address another terrible aspect of the pandemic, which is the scapegoating and blaming of Asian and Asian American people for the COVID-19 pandemic. And I thought that this was an opportunity for me to show up for my community. So when a colleague of mine, Russell Jung at San Francisco State University said he needed some help with the project, I jumped in and I said, I have a little bit of time. I have some research money. I have some eager research assistants. And I just began collecting newspaper articles on anti-Asian racism. And it was from there that 
I started supporting the work of Stop AAPI Hate and also eventually launched my own research mm -hmm. team at the University of Michigan, which is the Virulent Hate Project. So we use news media to track incidents of both anti-Asian racism, but also Asian American activism in the face of anti-Asian racism. And I think that latter part's really important. What we're seeing is Asian Americans facing a lot of racism, violence, stigmatization. They're experiencing a lot of fear, but they're also showing a lot of strength. They're organizing, mm -hmm. they're flexing their political power. And I think that's just as much a part of the story. And I don't think that gets enough attention. So uh, my research team mm -hmm. pays attention to both. So you're working now with this uh, anti-Asian Pacific Islander Stop Hate um, a project. And um, what have you so far found out, um, you know, in, in this research uh, or, or in the focus about uh, this hate and, and violence towards the Asian Americans uh, related to the COVID? Well, I think one thing that is important to know is there are many forms of anti-Asian discrimination, racism, scapegoating, and bias. I think a lot of the most mm -hmm. um, well-covered incidents that people talk about are incidents of violence, but the reality is that there are a variety of ways that anti-Asian racism has played out and affected people, uh, and they are all harmful. So uh, most of the incidents reported stop AAPI hate and also reported in these media are incidents of verbal harassment. There's a lot of nonverbal harassment, like people being denied the opportunity to use a gas station. Um, we also see incidents of politicians saying harmful and stigmatizing things about Asian and Asian American people. So one thing that I would emphasize, first of all, is that anti-Asian racism takes many forms. Some of them are crimes. Hate crimes get a lot of attention, but the vast majority are not hate crimes. And we need to pay attention to the broad spectrum of ways that Asian Americans are feeling scapegoated and victimized during this time. Mm -hmm. The second thing I'd emphasize is that it doesn't matter if you have a degree, live in a nice house. Um, it doesn't matter if you're not Chinese, you're actually Filipino or Burmese. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of money, you went to a fancy school. When people are doing harmful things uh, and they are showing bias and hate towards you, they're not going to pay attention and say, hey, wait, are you actually Filipino and not Chinese before they do something harmful to you? Which is a really long way of saying all Asian Americans have been affected by anti-Asian racism during COVID. Some groups have been more affected than others. Chinese Americans have experienced the, the vast majority of incidents reported in these media. Women have been particularly vulnerable, so two-thirds of the incidents we found in our research uh, were reported by women. Um, and we also know that simply because uh, Asian American people who are working class, they're out in public more than white collar people who are able to stay at home. Um, working class people can be more vulnerable or people who have, who are essential workers, I should say, are more vulnerable than people who can just ride out the pandemic in their pajamas at home and doing Zoom meetings. So, so there are some groups that are more vulnerable than others, but the reality is that um, it doesn't matter if you speak English perfectly and you're a good American, people see you as an Asian person. They see you as a foreigner who brought the virus to the U.S. 
And that, um, that is the context in which some of these attacks are happening. You know, as you are talking, uh, Melissa, I read your article to, um, uh, about two hours ago, and I started crying. You know why? Because I almost experienced it. I was in, and I, watched, I was in a shopping mall in Ontario Mills, but I would turn around and, and get so paranoid, and hopefully no one will hurt me. So I, I was successful, was able to buy what I needed. But the next day... In, in the news, a cup, an Asian couple got hurt, and I was just there. And you know, and, and you were saying this, and why so? Why are they doing this? Do you think, um, with regards to uh, the effects of this pandemic? I think the why is hard to answer. I can get theological on you and point to the fact that. We're all struggling people who are not at root of it very good at being kind to one another. There's that. But I think there are specific things uh, that we could also point to. Um, I think that there is a long history in the United States of people who are perceived as being outsiders being blamed for a crisis. So I can point to all sorts of examples. I can point to German-Americans being um, scapegoated during the First World War. I can point to Chinese-Americans being blamed for the bubonic plague outbreak in the early 20th century. I can point to Japanese-Americans being um, scapegoated and incarcerated during the Second World War. And because I'm from Michigan, I'll always point out the example of Vincent Chin being killed uh, in 1982, one month after I was born. Um, that particular incident had a really big impact on my family and the degree to which we felt safe in the United States. So there is that long history of um, people having an idea of who is rightfully in the United States. And that idea of who is rightfully in the United States is often based on race and um, perceptions of racial difference. I also think that there were opportunities when people of prominence could have chosen to make decisions in policy and in rhetoric that could have taken the air out of the possibility that groups will be stigmatized. So there is a reason why the WHO changed its naming conventions in 2015 to say you shouldn't associate a uh, a disease with a particular group of people or a place because it will contribute to backlash. They made those rules back in 2015 for a reason, because they didn't want to have a group of people experience the scapegoating that we did see in 2020 and going into 2021. So for that reason, it was very disheartening to see people of prominence in media and in government use terms like China virus, which has been found to yeah. be associated with um, increased perception of Asian and Asian American people as foreigners. And we saw when language like that became very popular that a nine year, almost decade long decline in anti-Asian bias that was reversed during the pandemic around the same exact time that people of prominence began to use um, these terms. And these terms were also used in attacks. So when people would be attacked on the street that same language was used by the assailants. So I think words matter. I think obviously we should pay attention to policy, we should pay attention to actions, but we should pay attention to the consequences of our words. 
So Melissa, as we wrap up, I have these um, two questions for you. So what are the lessons that you could share with our audience regarding racism and hate? And what would be your message to the American people? Well, I'll begin with the second piece. My message to the American pe okay. people is this. We've been here all along. We've been here for a long time. And by we, I mean Asian Americans, but especially Filipino Americans, we've been here a really long time. So any sort of idea that we don't belong here, we're not rightfully Americans, it's just absurd. We're here, we're not going anywhere. Bought my home here in Indiana, really like it. Not going anywhere. Okay, so we're here, we're here to stay. The message I would give to your listeners, and to Filipino Americans, um, but Asian Americans more generally, uh, about what I've learned in my research this year is this. This is, has been a really painful year, for sure, especially after the killing of women in Atlanta. I was a mess. My research team was a mess. I have a team of really dedicated young researchers, um, and many of us had to take a break because it was traumatizing to read over and over again stories of people being violent and racist and hateful towards Asian Americans. So I want to name that this was a painful year, but I also want to name that it was a very powerful year because what we have seen is a lot of Asian Americans in one way or another turning their trauma into an opportunity for transformation, turning their pain into power. And I find that very inspiring. We are seeing people leaning into the opportunities in their immediate locales to make change. We're seeing this um, at the national level. Yes, we're seeing efforts to um, pass legislation to address anti-Asian hate incidents, um, but we're also seeing it at the local level and at the hyper-local level. So I'll give a couple examples. We see people pushing for cities and um um, city governments and mayors to uh, create um, institutions to make sure Asian Americans are represented um, in decision-making processes. We are seeing hospitals and universities and school districts adopt changed curriculum to engage more in Asian American experiences. Mm -hmm. We are seeing individual families having conversations about how Asian Americans experience racism too, and that this incident in Atlanta is part of a long history of incidents of anti-Asian bias. So my point is this, people are finding creative, inspiring, powerful ways to be part of claiming a place at the table, flexing our power, and it's been a painful year, but that's where I'm finding my strength. I'm finding my strength in seeing all of the amazing ways people are taking action and creating um, change all in their immediate surroundings. So, Melissa, I want to ask, um, what was your inspiration and what led you to choose your uh, path in, into this profession that you've uh, chosen? Well, first of all, of all the yeah. first of all, I have to say it was not the profession that I expected I would pursue uh -huh. or my parents. I really uh -huh. hoped that I would be an engineer or a nurse. I really wanted to be the next Leia Salonga. Okay. Oh <laughs> wow! But, <laughs> but... You know, the world happens. The world uh -huh. changes, and there are terrible things that happen in the world that I think. Uh -huh. um, 
causes us to stop and reflect about not mm-hmm. only what gives us bliss, but what pain is there in the world that we could attend to. So for me, that critical mm-hmm. incident was 9-11. I was a sophomore in college when 9-11 happened, Um, and I was very shocked at many family members in the military, so that had a big impact on what our life was like, seeing family members go off Mm -hmm. to war, fighting the wars that ensued. Um, But for me, um, I was very struck by how my Arab American and Muslim American friends were stigmatized. I am from Michigan. There's a huge Arab American and Muslim American population Mm -hmm. in Michigan. I was deeply disturbed by seeing the scapegoating and violence and hate directed toward Mm -hmm. them after 9-11. In many ways, it is a lot like what we're seeing now during COVID um, with Asian Americans. And so when 9-11 happened and I saw my Arab American and Muslim American friends um, express anger and hurt at how they were being treated, I thought, oh, I would like to understand how we can get along with people who are racially, ethnically, and religiously different from ourselves. And that has always been at the center of my work, this understanding or desire to understand how we can get along with people who are racially, ethnically, and religiously different from ourselves. So that is why I decided to pursue a a career in academia, because I was just curious about why we turn on each other. But I also was curious Mm -hmm. about how we can be good to one another um, and examples of how people are able to transcend those differences. Um, That's always been a core part of the work I do, trying to understand um, that human experience. Well, thank you, Dr. Melissa Borja, for sharing your stories and shading, shade, shedding light on the issues of racism and violence that Filipino Americans, Asians, and other minorities face during these challenging times. We hope to engage you again in the future. Thank you so much for having me. And that is all that we have for this episode. I want to thank our guests, Dr. Melissa Borja, my co-host, Mindy Ofiana, our director and producer, Rodney Cajudo, our executive producers, PNAA President Dr. Mary Joy Garcia Dia and PNAA Executive Director Carmina Bautista. Join us every Wednesday here on Rise Up. Until then, keep on rising. See you next week. This publication was made possible by Cooperative Agreement CDC RFA IP212106 from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of CDC HHS.